Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. years ago, here are a couple of documentaries that uh, were screened on the BBC, one in two, 2017, Climate Change by the Numbers, that was the title, um, uh, and the blurb said it hones in on just three key numbers that clarify all the important questions around climate change. Just three numbers, at the time were 0.85 degrees Celsius, 95% confidence, and one trillion tonnes. Just three numbers. A year or two later, another documentary uh, fronted by David Attenborough, Climate Change, The Facts. Uh, and, and here, uh, the, the blurb it indicates uh, the film will deliver an unflinching exploration of the facts of what dangerous levels of climate change could mean. <clears throat> so both of these give examples of ways of communicating what climate change means through numbers through the scientific evidence uh, that has been acquired over years, over decades, uh, if not over centuries. Or to take another example um, uh, from a a climate activist, uh, Greta Thunberg, when she came on the scene in 2018-19, she would quite often go around saying these sorts of things, that she sees climate change as a black and white issue. I see things from outside the box, referring to her own personality. Uh, You can't be a little bit sustainable. Either you're sustainable or you're not. It's a black and white issue. Climate change, similarly, is a black and white issue. It either is happening or it's not. You're on this side or you're on that side. Um, And and similarly, the argument that follows from this, uh, that her and indeed many other uh, public commentators and activists would argue, is to always draw attention back to the science. Follow the science. Listen to the scientists. Just get those three numbers in your head. Get all the facts that the scientists produce about climate change in your head, and that's uh, what you need. And uh, similarly, we've seen this repeated over decades now, actually, in the way in which climate change has been foregrounded and communicated. Uh, I, I often use this headline from 15 years ago, the front page of the Guardian newspaper just after the, the, uh, <coughs> the fourth assessment report of the IPCC was published. On the front page, the headline, now the scientific argument has been ended, now, now will the world act. In other words, the science is what matters before action can Proceed, Or take Pachari, who was a previous uh, chair of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, after the fifth assessment report. In, in a public launch of that report, he says, we trust, we need the will to change, which we trust will be motivated by an understanding of the science. How does change happen? By understanding the science. Getting the science right. Get those numbers in your head. That will provide you with the motivation to change politics or policies uh, or, or actions. Or the, the sort of slogans one sees typically 
and, and so again, the public protest marches, um, this was one from uh, 2014, the People's Climate March, science stands for climate action. Science comes first, climate action follows. Uh, or take this more recent example from uh, last spring, the hunger striker, uh, <coughs> Angus Rose, uh, who had a 37-day hunger uh, fast sitting outside the Houses of Parliament. <coughs> and what he, what he was asking for was for a briefing of members of Parliament by the chief government scientist on the science of climate change. That was what his demand was. And he was willing to starve himself to death to get that scientific briefing in front of the members of the Houses uh, uh, of uh, uh, Commons and Lords. That dis dis uh, displays an extraordinary degree of faith and confidence that if you expose politicians to the facts of climate science, then that will unlock the gates for public uh, and policy action. <laughs> and I use these examples because, of course, I'm wanting to push back against this way of thinking <laughs> about climate change, or certainly this way of thinking about science, actually. Because putting the science in this prominent driving seat, thinking that it is a scientific briefing that parliamentarians need to hear, is actually asking science to do more than science can do. Um, this first quote from uh, a colleague Dan Sarowitz in the States puts it very nicely that if we're expecting science, as Pachari said, to be the driving engine for our will to change policies and behaviours, our expectations of enlightenment ideals, he says, of applied rationality are, them, are themselves irrational. We're asking science to do the impossible, to arrive at a scientifically coherent and politically unifying understanding of problems that are inherently open, indeterminate and contested. And this will be the argument that I'm going to develop in the talk, that, that, that climate change is a, a, a phenomenon that we uh, are experiencing and encountering that is inherently open, indeterminate, and contested. Or, or to take another colleague, Tim Lewins, uh, professor of history and philosophy of science at Cambridge, in his little book, The Meaning of Science, <coughs> and he, he, he spends the whole of this, this 200 pages of this little pocketbook explaining how science works, explaining the power of science, to explain how the physical processes <coughs> of uh, the world operate, but at the end of it, he says, there is no chance that science will ever tell us all that we need to know if we are to understand our world, to live well, and to make wise decisions. There are, there are limits to the power of science to actually animate and motivate the way in which we, as humans, think, imagine, argue, and act in the world. And so over um, uh, my career of studying climate change uh, it, it, and, and grappling with these questions, if you will, the relationship between 
science, human values, public politics. It leads me to uh, uh, put uh, this emphasis on a different set of modes of reasoning, uh, modes of, of, of thinking, uh, <clears throat> modes of engaging uh, ourselves uh, as humans living in social and cultural and political formations. And this is the idea of stories. Because it seems to me at the heart of the problems associated with climate change are not fundamentally ones that scientists will be able to unravel or untangle or to speak with a single voice on. It's not just a case of getting the three numbers right. Because the fundamental questions are these. How should humans live? How should societies navigate and argue with each other when we disagree? What duties do we have to others? Others who are yet unborn, others who are non-human, others who may be our deities whom we worship and seek to obey? What are the political institutions that we believe are effective, that we believe are just? So these are questions that are not, I would argue, amenable to resolution by more scientific effort. But they are questions that the long human tradition of storytelling, of myth-making, do help us to find our way through. And so this talk then from now on is going to be focusing on the sort of stories that have emerged either explicitly or implicitly around this idea of climate change. And uh, for those of you who know my book from 2009, this was what I first started pointing to, or was trying to, to point towards uh, in that book, why we disagree about climate change. So uh, one way of thinking about uh, storytelling around climate change is indeed to uh, think in, in, in some sense quite literally about uh, stories, about, about fiction, about creative fiction, about creative narratives. And, and we've seen over the last 20 or so years in particular a rise uh, of this particular genre of, of creative fiction, sometimes referred to now as uh, climate fiction or cli-fi. Here are some examples. Um, you'll, I'm sure, uh, have encountered others and be familiar with others. Um, and these sort of uh, uh, examples have taken the, the, the idea of climate change and, and trying to deal with it uh, in uh, the form of uh, of, of, of novels. Uh, and, and here this um, seeks to engage uh, a, a much more complex narrative around climate change that engages the human imagination, that maybe draws the readers of these uh, fictions into the tensions, the dilemmas, the paradoxes, the contradictions that we all experience and encounter in our everyday lives, but in particular as we try actually to engage with this idea of climate change. Perhaps one good example of that was Ian McEwan's attempt in 2010 in his book Solar, 
to, to try to write a, a blockbuster uh, uh, novel uh, around the idea of climate change, a very uh, explicitly uh, heralded attempt by McEwen. There was sort of two or three years of publicity leading up to this uh, uh, publication in 2010, saying here was Ian McEwen who's going to take climate change as his uh, subject for his uh, latest novel. Uh, and his character, Michael Beard, <coughs> who is this um, uh, rather unattractive, uh, despicable, in many senses, uh, uh, scientist, uh, trying to find the technology that would provide the breakthrough uh, that would allow uh, uh, the, 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 the global societies to move away from fossil-based fuels. And it, it, it had all of those elements uh, of, of it, uh, of, uh, as I said, the contradiction uh, of uh, uh, the human character. So there's one way we could think about this uh, through uh, looking at these, these examples of creative uh, 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 storytelling. And I also draw attention here to this uh, book called Story Listening, uh, that, that was published uh, about 18 months ago by Sarah Dillon and Claire Craig, who, who actually take this argument a little bit further forward and say, um, stories are important not just in their own right, but actually stories are important as evidence, evidence that should inform and guide uh, uh, and uh, animate decision makers and public politicians. So when people talk about evidence-based policy, most people instinctively think, well, that evidence is, well, it's scientific evidence. It's evidence of economics. It may even be the evidence uh, that comes out from behavioral scientists through opinion polling. But what Dylan and Craig argue is that actually stories, the stories that people tell each other, the stories that have been passed on by word of mouth, these stories are themselves pieces of evidence that should inform and guide and inspire and animate decision makers and public uh, politicians. They call it narrative evidence and public reasoning. But I'm actually going to focus on a, on a slightly different way of coming at this uh, angle of stories. Uh, rather than uh, just simply uh, looking at these particular cases of individual authors or individual uh, 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 creative uh, uh, writings, whether it's poetry or plays, dramas or, or, or novels, I actually want to, to, to think about the ways in which stories appear in the public discourse around climate change. And uh, one can think about this then in, in a much broader sense uh, by the, thinking about the types of stories uh, that circulate. Uh, where do they gain their inspiration from? What sort of uh, storyline do they actually uh, promote uh, in their public uh, narration? Comedies, dramas, satires, uh, tragedies. And I'm going to draw attention to um, 11 particular storylines, or one, sometimes maybe in communication studies might think of these as different ways of framing the question of climate change, but I, I, I like the idea that these framings uh, are, are slightly more than that. They actually have storyline content to them uh, in the same way that uh, more broader uh, attempts at narratives uh, would uh, have storylines as well. 
So the first of them, and well, why not, I suppose, if we find that everyone else starts with science, uh, actually think of science itself as a story. And the storyline behind this way of framing climate change is that science works progressively towards a greater account, a, greater, a more truthful account of how the world works. And therefore, if we're trying to grapple with something like climate change and understand how much humans have changed the climate and how much that climate of, of, of the future may change and what impacts it may have, this story would say one needs to start with putting more effort into that scientific uh, endeavour. And one can see this type of storyline threading its way through uh, pretty much all of the IPCC reports <coughs> over the last 30 years. Uh, always, yes, giving an account of what scientists believe to be the case at any particular moment, but always this promise, always this promise that there is more science yet to be done, and therefore that more science that is yet to be done will deliver greater certainty, greater accuracy, greater precision about what the future of climate and therefore the impacts of that future climate will hold for human society. That is the actually quite explicit promise that one sees threaded through these uh, IPCC reports. And it's a very, uh, in one sense, it's a very alluring story. Why would we not want more certainty about the future? Why would we, why would we not want to know with ever greater precision, well, just what is going to happen in 20 years' time to the Greenland ice sheet or in 60 years' time to the Amazon uh, rainforest. Yes, let's invest our efforts in science, allow it to uh, tell us uh, what the future holds. So this is a story, it's a powerful story of scientific progress. And many people will find themselves drawn to that and uh, gravitate around it. But the second story, which in a way has always paralleled, at least as long as I can remember, um, grappling with this idea of climate change, which started when I was a student back around 1980, so 40 years ago, there's always been another story alongside that story that climate science is working towards ever greater certainty and precision about predicting the future, which is this. It's a story of lament. It's a story that many people uh, may find, have found themselves drawn into the environmental movement in the first place. Um, certainly, if you read back to, for example, let's take uh, Rachel Carson and her 1962 uh, book, Silent Spring, which many see as a, a launch pad for the new environmentalism of um, certainly the Western world in the 1960s drawing attention to the way in which DDT and other uh, industrial chemicals were polluting and destroying uh, the natural environment. This is the narrative of lament. 
And we've seen it popping up uh, in various places around climate change over the years. Bill McKibben's book from 1989, this was the book that sort of launched his uh, career as a, 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 a nature writer and then a, a climate activist uh, himself, The End of Nature. This is the lament that climate change draws us to recount. And for, for, for McGibbon, the significance for McKibben of climate change is that climate change, if you like, for him was the final evidence that human societies have destroyed forever this idea of wildness or wilderness or the purely natural. Other issues were more localized temporally or spatially, but now if human fingerprints were on the climate system, then there is no longer anywhere or forever more anything that we can call natural. So this is, a, again, it's a powerful story. It's a story of lament. It's a story of loss for which uh, we're drawn to, to um, grieve for what uh, has been uh, lost or damaged or destroyed. But this barely begins to exhaust the number of stories that have powerfully grown up and circulated around the idea of climate change. The next one is entirely different. It's a story of market failure. Climate change, the problem of climate change in this narrative is fundamentally a failure of market economics. The, the effluence from industrialization, in particular fossil fuel-driven industrialization, have entered the atmosphere without any price attached to them. The idea of the externality in economics. And this was famously um, or, or very prominently uh, given salience back in 2006 when Nick Stern, on behalf of, of the British government, uh, wrote what became known as the Stern Review, but it basically is the economics of climate change. The first heavyweight, serious institutional institutional economic treaties on the problem of climate change. And in the very first line of those 700 pages in the Stern Report, the very first line was, climate change is the greatest example of market failure we have ever seen. This is a different story then that has grown up and of course has circulated in uh, many different uh, political institutions uh, and amongst uh, many different political actors. Because if climate change is a story of market failure, then it clearly draws attention to what at least one of the solutions is to climate change, which is to put a price on these efforts, to put a price on carbon or methane uh, or other uh, greenhouse uh, gases. If one could put a price on this, then actually, the mechanics of market-based economics will mean that those products will be priced out of the market, allowing the introduction of less or zero carbon emitting uh, energy technologies. And so on the back of this story, we've seen the growth of, of for example, uh, various emissions trading uh, schemes. That map shows all the different emissions trading schemes now around the world, or the graph shows the uh, the rise and fall of the price of carbon 
uh, on the European uh, carbon market. So the way in which you tell the story of climate change influences and shapes the type of um, interventions or, or the types of policies that you're likely to seek to pursue. A related narrative around climate change that again has got powerful adherents and advocates is the climate change as a story of energy transition or energy revolution or Energiewende as the, the, the Germans call it. What is needed here is, is not just putting a price on carbon. Actually, the real focus on this is an innovation challenge. What we actually need is to pour energy and effort into, uh, 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 creative effort, into innovating new energy technologies, whether it's solar or wind, whether it's the new uh, emergence of concentrated solar or hydrogen uh, or of uh, 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 ocean algae. Uh, it, it, this is the challenge that climate change uh, draws us into. Mark Jacobson, perhaps uh, one of the more prominent uh, uh, advocates of this idea, in particular for him, uh, that 100% of global energy needs can be met by existing renewable energy technologies without nuclear, without biofuels. So this is the story, and again, it has, a, it, it has its attractions. That if we're going to displace fossil-based energy technologies, we need something reliable, affordable, and sustainable uh, in order to dis displace it. And that is a te technological challenge, first and foremost. Or differently, again, we have this story, the story around which various forms of political uh, movements have uh, gathered their forces and gathered their protests that what climate change is, it isn't just a lament for a lost Eden, or it's not just a market failure, it's not actually a techn technical challenge. Actually what climate change is drawing attention to is the fundamental inability of a capitalist system to live within natural limits. And so one sees, and again, we can trace the origins of these back into the 1990s, new social movements that have uh, mobilized around this argument that the only solution to climate change is to a dismantling not just of the fossil fuel economy, but of, to, to use uh, Greta Thunberg's words again from more recently, uh, to overthrow the West's oppressive and racist capitalist system. The real enemies are the capitalist system which puts profit before the lives of billions of humans and the planet. There'll be no solution to climate change unless this system is overturned and overthrown. And again, it's a story that uh, one can see the, the energy, the, the power, the vitalism uh, around which uh, <coughs> political actors, social movements might gather. Uh, in order to uh, seek to deliver. Naomi Klein, in her book from 2014, you know, she, uh, this changes everything, climate versus capitalism, you know, she, she, she 
was very explicit about this actually at one point in, in the book by saying that she, she came late to, to this whole issue of, of climate change, uh, given her, her other um, uh, campaigning issues. But she said, I realized at one point, at one point I realized actually the science of global warming, this, this could be a catalyst for forms of social and economic justice in which I already believed. So that also is an interesting movement in the storyline that the science is actually in this case being appropriated in order to deliver some very explicit political goals. This is a long way from the science first narratives or arguments from which I started. Or similarly, but from a very different geographical and cultural perspective, we could see this story that climate change is, in effect, it, it, it's a story of subaltern resistance. And I use as an example of this as, um, again, a social movement uh, that has emerged in the last 10 years amongst uh, 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 some Pacific Islanders uh, called the Pacific Climate Warriors. And here, what climate change is, is actually a, 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 an idea around which Pacific Islanders often seen as marginal, often seen certainly by Western commentators as mere victims and passive victims of sea level rise and of the effects of climate change. For the Pacific climate warriors, just the opposite. Actually, no, climate change is an opportunity for us to rise up and demonstrate that we are not passive, we are not victims, we are not vulnerable, we have capabilities, we have a voice that we want the world to hear that speaks about climate change and our historical experience of climate change on our terms and in our language. So for such people, climate change, this, this particular story of climate change is a very, very powerful one. Or here's a counter-narrative with which, again, over the last 30 years, we've been uh, very familiar. Here, the story of climate change is none of the aforementioned uh, that I've uh, alluded to. Climate change is, in fact, a, it's a conspiracy. It's a story of a liberal conspiracy that is using this idea of climate change in order to put restrictions on free markets, to use centralized government power and control in order to limit the freedoms of individual peoples. The story has been very powerful, of course, in, in parts of the USA and in various degrees in other uh, countries around the world. Um, and we've seen uh, over the years various uh, eruptions of this particular narrative um, coming through particular uh, think tanks or particular uh, high-profile politicians. And it's one, for a variety of reasons, has attracted significant numbers uh, of people in some of these cultures. A very different story more recent one, I would suggest, uh, is this story of a hothouse earth. 
there's always been to some degree uh, an, an apocalyptic edge to some of the stories that circulate around climate change, but I would argue in the last five or six years, these have become particularly more prominent, um, partly triggered by uh, a, a particular paper here by Will Stephan and others, the, uh, which talked about the hothouse earth, the hothouse earth, the idea of a runaway climate change, the idea of tipping points, whether global, a global tipping point or a series of regional tipping points, after which actually the climate runs out of control. The world gets hotter and hotter, uh, and there's nothing more that we can do about it. These ideas of, of thresholds, of cliff edges, of being too late. And this story has gathered uh, around it uh, various other uh, manifestations. Um, and indeed, the uh, movement uh, Extinction Rebellion partly drew, I would argue, upon this particular uh, storyline. Uh, when talking about uh, <coughs> extinction, or to say Mayor Hillman, a public commentator, we're doomed. The outcome is death, and it's the end of most life on the planet. <coughs> These are uh, uh, psychologically powerful ways of drawing people into a particular uh, storyline. David Wallace-Wells, in his book, from 2018, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. And I would suggest that partly, partly driven by that, or, or at least a reaction to, or a, an attempt to try to diffuse that type of extinction narrative, the idea actually that the Earth is doomed, or we've only got 10 more years before we are all doomed, what has arisen is a is a story here that I call technological mastery. Again, probably the, the seeds of this, one can see these further back in time, but I think it's been given particular uh, 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 power as, as a reaction uh, to this idea of a planetary ending because of climate change. So it's the idea of technological mastery, the idea that if, if none of these other means of intervening are going to make any effect at all. If carbon emissions continue to rise, if per capita consumption continues to increase, if politicians can't negotiate a treaty uh, through the various COPs, if indeed there is a tipping point that we are approaching, well, we need to take drastic action and, as it were, create a thermostat ourselves for the planet that we can turn down. And, and particularly in the imaginary, the, the idea here is the idea of solar engineering that by influencing the radiative properties of the stratosphere with particulates, we can actually create a, a, a screen, a shield um, <clears throat> that uh, reflects uh, solar radiation back into space. And the more of this we put up, the more radiation uh, is reflected back to space, hence this idea of a thermostat. The idea of technological mastery, and again, it has a, a, a long human history. We can treat, treat this, uh, take this all the way back, of course, to one of the Greek myths of, of Prometheus. Uh, so it's partly a story of hubris, uh, of power, but also I think it's a story partly grown out of desperation, triggered by the previous story of a hothouse or of a runaway climate change. And I just finished with two final stories. 
uh, th that I see uh, circling in, in various public uh, uh, discourses and settings. One here is the story of, an un of unmaking civilization. This um, uh, particularly was crystallized um, about uh, 12 years ago uh, by Paul Kingsnorth and colleagues when they set up the Dark Mountain Project, um, which was a moment of, of great deep despair for Kingsnorth and his colleagues just after the failed summit in Copenhagen in 2009. Again, a feeling of, 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 of failure, a failure of desperation, a, fe fe a, a feeling that actually th this issue is, is just too big. This issue of climate change is just too big. Um, but rather than fighting against capitalism, rather than seeking technological mastery, uh, what Kings North and colleagues basically did was to step back from the very idea of progress or civilization. People who stopped believing, stopped believing in the narratives about the future and, and to start unweaving some of the myths uh, <coughs> that underpin our idea of endless uh, progress. And as the, uh, the, the, the title of this project called The Dark Mountain Project, that actually it's a dark story. There's going to be collapse. There is going to be dysfunction before there can be any possibility of uh, revival or reconstruction. And my final story... Uh, one could say is uh, a more hopeful one. And it's certainly a story that is more infused with a, a, a cosmological, if not a, a, a spiritual dimension. And it's one that was given particular salience uh, around 2015 um, uh, by uh, Pope Francis in his publication of Laudato Si on Care for Our Common Home. Pope Francis was by far away not the first uh, religious leader to take climate change seriously. Again, one can trace some of the early uh, uh, in interventions by religious leaders back to the early 1990s, if not earlier. But simply for the prominence and the status that the Pope holds, not just amongst the Catholic Church, but other religious traditions, if not amongst secular society at large, uh, this was a very, uh, very in in influential uh, 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 story that he offered in his encyclical. And the way in which he told this story had dimensions to it that were absent in some of the other stories that I've uh, mentioned. Yes, he focused on the reality of climate change, of ecological disruption. Yes, he drew attention to the ill effects of unfettered capitalism and the inequalities that that can generate around the world. But he also drew attention to a much bigger story in which that, this needs to be situated, which for him is a particular cosmology uh, <coughs> that understands uh, a caring and creator God, and also a particular form of ethical reasoning uh, that follows uh, in the tradition uh, <coughs> of Catholic theology and ethics. So yes, it's a challenge to the centers of power, 
but it's also a challenge to each single individual as well for recognizing that many of those uh, seeds or those instincts of power and destruction and oppression actually reside within each human individual as well. So this story, again, is different from the others, but also has elements that the other stories uh, do not have. So those are my uh, examples. Um, I started with this, climate change and facts and the numbers. I don't believe that this route of getting the numbers right, communicating the facts, is actually a particularly effective or desirable even way of engaging uh, with our peers and our colleagues and our antagonists in public life around what climate change means and signifies. It, it, it offers a particular way of thinking about this relationship between science, human values, and public politics that I sometimes refer to as science first. You start with the facts, you start with the observations, um, uh, and then you follow through in a linear way uh, to reach some sort of outcome. Actually, for me, inverting that uh, uh, caricature uh, by putting our stories first, by putting our, the ways in which we understand ourselves as individual and as social actors in this world with beliefs and with values that inspire us, that give us meaning, a sense of purpose in this world, actually then takes us through these various stages of grappling with this idea of climate change to find out what forms of interventions uh, are suitable and desirable for us. It doesn't necessarily lead to convergence, of course, and this is the whole point. There is no single convergent solution or intervention or outcome for climate change. But I suggest that starting with stories and reasoning through stories, public argument through stories, foregrounding our beliefs and our values is a better way uh, to proceed. And I come back to this book um, from uh, Dylan and, and Craig, um, asking you the question, which of those various stories I've suggested around climate change are ones that you are attracted to? Are there others that I haven't articulated? Where do you place your faith? Which of those stories do you place your faith in? Which story are you part of? But recognizing that these different uh, uh, narratives reveal the diverse conflicting social norms and values and providing a more complex picture of a society's coherence or lack uh, thereof, as Dylan uh, puts it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.